Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Before I jump into a brief summary of the segments in this episode, I wanted to ask a favor of you that won't take long at all. If you like this podcast, please swing over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. Those ratings really do help give our podcast more exposure, and we couldn't produce this show without you. Now for a look at the episode. First, Andrew Kloster from the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University joins me to talk about student loans, a topic that's once again caught the attention of the country, as many presidential candidates are releasing proposals to address, and possibly even forgive, student debt. After that, Acton's Director of Research, Samuel Gregg, is joined by Mustafa Akiol, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, to unravel the subject of Islam and freedom. In the past few decades, an important question has been raised in the West. Is Islam a religion compatible with the idea of individual freedom? There's an intellectual battle going on in the Muslim world right now, where some believers condemn freedom as a Western invention, while others praise it as Allah's blessing. To read more on this topic or on the topic of student debt, check out our related articles in the show notes, posted at blog.actin.org every Wednesday when our episodes release. That's blog.actin, A-C-T-O-N On April 22nd, Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren released her plan to address the student debt crisis, proposing almost total loan forgiveness and, to top it off, free college education. Higher education opened a million doors for me, the senator wrote in an article. It's how the daughter of a janitor in a small town in Oklahoma got to become a teacher, a law school professor, a U.S. senator, and eventually a candidate for president of the United States. Today, it's virtually impossible for a young person to find that kind of opportunity, she writes. The cost of her plan? $1.25 trillion, spanning 10 years and pulled from the pockets of millionaires. The student debt crisis is now at the forefront of many Democratic candidates' platforms. But just how big is the problem? And what would real solutions look like? To help answer some of these questions for me, Andrew Kloster, the Deputy Director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University, joins me on the show. Andrew, thank you for joining Act in Line. Thanks for having me. I recently ran across an article of yours published for the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty titled Student Loans, Perhaps Our Nation's Greatest Moral Hazard Problem. And now that student loans and especially loan forgiveness are back in the news, we should be talking about the potential moral hazards in the student loan market. First, what defines a moral hazard and what does it specifically mean in the context of student debt? Sure. Uh, a moral hazard is a kind of basic economic concept, which basically says that when you're designing when you're designing policies, what you don't want to do is allow individuals to take risks where uh, you can monetize all of the upside personally. In other words, you can if you if you succeed and and uh, the investment goes well, that you will reap all of the gains, but then pass off the potential downside risk. To others, to third parties. So, in other words, if you lose, if the investment goes down, other people bear the brunt of that, and and that's what a moral hazard is. And the reason it's a problem is because you will be incentivized to to take on additional debt and additional risk that uh, a rational actor wouldn't ordinarily take in the absence of the of the of the offset of the risk. In the context of student loans, what that means is we have this large 
federal uh, subsidy for uh, on interest and with forgiveness, in addition to a bunch of other subsidies at the state level. And what this does is this encourages people who are just deciding whether to take student loans uh, out. It encourages them to take them out at higher rates than they otherwise would. And this is not necessarily a bad thing if we as a nation or as a state or local government add everything up and we decide that we would like to subsidize, that we would like to pay additional money for education. It's an important thing. The problem is when these risks and these trade-offs are not fully discussed in the policy process. So when we talk about the risks and the trade-offs, what kind of markets or what kind of problems, if any, in the market have we seen resulting from the fact that this is a moral hazard? The piece that I wrote was in the context of uh, thinking about what we can do with the massive student debt bubble. I think it's a bubble that we have. Uh, It's a definite drag on the economy. At the time I wrote the piece, the total student loan debt in the United States was over $1 trillion. I think that's over $1.3 trillion now. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's actually $1.5 trillion. Okay, so it's gigantic. It's huge. And that's a huge drag on the economy. And so it's, a, it's an important policy question. How do we uh, get folks out from under this? I think that that's, that is a, an important thing to do. We talk about jobs as well. In the context of the of the national policy conversation right now, we talk about how important it is to make sure that people have steady jobs uh, and so on. In the context of student loan debt, we have a huge drag on the economy, and any attempt to fix that or correct that, we need to be very careful about making sure that we understand the costs and benefits in the short and the long term. So in the context of the piece that I wrote, I was saying, what are some things that we can do to... Uh, alleviate student loan debt and stop and shrink the curve so that, that the student loan debt portfolio doesn't grow anymore, and yet also maintain a lot of our other policy objectives about you know subsidizing and funding uh, public education. So I named a few of them. One of them was bankruptcy. You know, it it, it comes out of church law. It you know comes to us through the English law, and it's economically efficient. It basically says that in a certain circumstance where Uh, an individual can't make payments, the court is going to take a very close look at who this person is, how they've been acting, and then they're going to set up a system to allow this person to kind of eliminate the debt all at once. And that makes some sense because people do get into situations where they can't get out from under debt. But the problem is, is you don't want people to, for example, know that they're going to enter bankruptcy and then immediately buy a Lamborghini and then go into bankruptcy and hide the car or something like that. In the context of student loan markets, the concern is, the moral hazard is, if we initiate a system where we have bankruptcy as an option, there are going to be people in the transition phase who took out more debt than they otherwise would have and then now get the benefit of bankruptcy. Whereas if you have bankruptcy at the front end, Universities might be more careful with who they admit, how they structure finances, how they you know, service debt, and so on. And we may come up with an economically efficient system. So the concern really is the transition phase. So when we're talking about this problem, earlier you were highlighting the numbers that 
we have swirling around right now because we know that there is $1.5 trillion um, in student loans overall, and that's affecting 44 million borrowers with an average loan of just over 37000 But as college tuition becomes more expensive every year, we haven't really seen enrollment really slow down yet. About 70% of recent high school graduates are already enrolling, and that's historically high. What exactly has caused the student debt to really balloon in the last 10 years? One of the pieces of data that I link in my piece is the explanation that I think it was Vanderbilt University looked at their increase in expenditures that were not related to coursework, and they found that the majority of it was, uh, the vast majority of it was was related to regulatory compliance. So, uh, and, and regulatory compliance doesn't just mean looking at the laws and trying to figure it out. But it also means hiring people. We now have, you know, lots of designated Title IX coordinators and the like at universities. So really, I think the story across administrations in this country, with rare exceptions, uh, Hilldale might be one, for example, because they don't take money or, or et cetera. With rare exceptions, we see a huge growth in the bureaucracy, which is not related to instruction or the academic mission of the university. So I think that's a huge driver. And so I cite that in my piece just to say it's important for us to look at what is driving the cost. But what about the demand side? It's kind of interesting that it seems like college is one of the rare, almost completely inelastic demands out there. And what I mean by inelastic is as the price goes up, the demand doesn't go down. People continue to want it. Uh, It's almost a default. Now, what that could mean is that the benefit of college is so high that the price just hasn't caught up yet, and we're just not seeing uh, the market equilibrate, but it would if we got to, you know, $200,000 a year or something like that, something ridiculous, then maybe we finally would start seeing uh, elasticity in the market. And there's some truth to that, but the reality is that I think, uh, I believe that there's a lot of irrationality in the market. If we look at Europe, for example, they have very robust non-liberal arts curricula. I think you'll see people on the left and right think it would be nice if we had some more vocational training so that not everyone thought that they needed to go to a four-year university. How do you think that this has affected young adults practically? Do you think that student debt plays a large factor in young adults delaying marriage or buying a house compared to their parents or grandparents? It is a drag on individuals when they take out massive debt and they have to pay it back for years and years and years, we definitely see depressed demand and economic activity. Uh, But at the same time, many people make these uh, statements like, I need to be situated before I can have children, or I need to be situated before I can, you know, start working on my creative output, et cetera. This is an independent problem. I I wish that this could be solved as well. To to put it another way, if you're looking at it purely rationally, people could make sacrifices. However, many of them are at this point stuck in this mindset that they have to have a certain lifestyle and handle the student debt. And that is really, you know, you have to make sacrifices in life one way or another. So whether it's you pay for a, you go to a cheaper school or you make sacrifices in the repayment period, one way or another, you're going to you're going to pay. And then people nowadays want to have everything. And I think that's that's part of my concern. What similarities between this debt crisis and the crash in 2008 do you see? <laughs> so I'm not an economist and I'm certainly not a, you know, macroeconomist. But I mean, what we hear about 2008 was 
that the federal government subsidized on moral grounds a certain type of debt instrument, which is fine. But when the bills came due and the bubble popped, the federal government then balked at, I mean, they ended up doing TARP, but they balked at kind of doing a bailout for the individuals that they had sort of put in these positions. In this, in the circumstances with the student loan crisis, it's sort of similar. I mean, the student loan bubble hurts the individuals down the line in the same way that the housing crisis hurts individuals down the line. Um, and the intermediate bad actors in the, in the sense of the banks in 2008, the intermediate bad actors right now are, are to a certain extent, to a large extent, uh, the universities who continue to receive massive subsidies. They keep pushing their tuition up, and and there's no talk of other than, I mean, there was a recent executive order by Trump related to free speech, but there's really not any talk of going after universities on consumer protection grounds. So they're kind of getting off scot-free. And then another similarity is is the generational one. I don't recall the exact numbers, but the 2008 crisis, basically, you know, if you were coming of age in 2005 or six, you know, entering the workforce in your early 20s, like a millennial, and then, you know, you your real wages today, you lost a decade, essentially, of wage growth. And then if you were one of those, if you were a student at the time, now you have an additional drag of this of these larger student loan repayments. So I think we have with the millennials and younger, the the Zoomers or whatever you call them, we definitely have a right out the gate, a lower real wage than in the nineties, certainly lost growth, and then this enormous debt burden in addition to automation and all of these other things occurring. So I think we have a huge macroeconomic problem, but I guess at the same time, at least people are able to get their sort of Amazon deliveries and, you know, (laughs) have streaming video. And uh, right. So we have a massive crisis on our hands. And when and how an economic crisis on the ledgers turns into something political is hard to tell. I think we're starting to see a little bit of that, but it's been surprising to me that... The talk was, the talk has been on the left and sort of on the fringe left and not as much on the right. And that's kind of been interesting to me. Well, that is a perfect segue into my next question, because as we're gearing up for the 2020 presidential elections, we're watching a lot of Democrats make huge promises that they cannot keep. Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, most notably, wants college tuition to be completely free. And she's also said that she wants 95 percent of student debt just forgiven. The Education Department is currently shouldering this debt, and it doesn't seem like it's going to slow down anytime soon. So at the end of the day, what kind of real solutions or crash and burn scenarios are we looking at? Because, you know, it doesn't really seem like there's a way out. And as we're talking about shifting risk, we're making huge market gambles. Right. Right. No, I I agree with all of that. It's hard to say what we can do. So first thing we can do is we can have a massive, and this is the hardest and most unlikely thing, is that we could have a huge bipartisan consensus that we need to solve the problem. And there might be some sort of trade-off. We might get student loan debt bankruptcy um, and some sort of forgiveness in exchange for a massive scale back of some of the regulatory measures that we have 
that would facilitate colleges and universities scaling back their administration, you know, limiting the Title IX and, 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 and things like that. So that's number one, and a, and a real refocusing on the educational mission of the university. So that's like a real high-level national conversation. We could have certain high-profile lawsuits, prosecutions, if there is uh, actual fraud that can kind of tell folks to, to get on board. I mean, you can certainly have civil rights actions against, we've seen a few of these, against uh, overzealous Title IX administrators and universities that completely misread the law, in my estimation. You could um, sort of scare universities into doing what is in their own best interest already, uh, which is focusing on education. There, there are options out there. I'm not really optimistic because the left is very concerned about the consumer protection angle in the abstract, but they love colleges as an institution, so they're not willing to do anything too risky. The right, the grassroots right, hates universities as institutions, but they've also got this free marketism in their brain that just prevents them from maybe seeing exactly how to solve the problem. And then never mind the donor class, which likes having their names on schools, which may be very good donors, very good people, but they're not going to want to shut down universities or completely attack it and then not get invited to to cocktail parties and the like. So it's really a very difficult situation. Well, my last question kind of builds off of that, because when it comes to student loans, a lot of people are questioning who's accountable. You know, obviously, when students take on loans for tuition, they're aware of it. They freely choose to take on the debt. But a lot of people are making the argument that the Department of Education has a moral obligation to at least partially forgive the loans because they helped contribute to the mess. Where do you stand on that? Well, I would just say, I mean, if you really want an answer that jives with sort of free market economics, I would say we have a massive subsidy, a subsidy to universities right now. They have billion dollar endowments and they don't pay taxes on it. And it is for a small and insular group of of people. It's not a public purpose. The C3, I mean, tax deductions and tax breaks, it's one thing to say, let's reduce taxes across the board. It's another thing to say, let's give handouts to a specific group. There are some people who say, well, any tax cut is great because, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to shrink the beast or, or whatever. But the reality is, is that a selective tax break is a, a subsidy. I mean, there's any economist will tell you that it is a subsidy. And we have a huge, huge subsidy to donations to universities and to the growth of their endowments. And I think we could we could take a look at that. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining the show and clearing up some of the fog around this issue for us. Sure. Thank you for having me. From 1930 to 1960, Fulton J. Sheen was one of the most beloved Catholic priests in America. He was primarily known for his popular books, radio broadcasts, and Emmy award-winning television show, Life is Worth Living. However, Sheen was also a deft and serious thinker in efforts to bring Americans in closer alignment with the Christian tradition, especially that of the Catholic Church. Beneath his wide smile and jokes was one of the most accomplished Catholic intellectuals in American history, and whose work deserves closer study, a study which yields a strict yet friendly criticism of American economic and political life. Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan on May 30th 
to hear James Patterson, professor of politics at Ave Maria University, speak on anti-communism and patriotism, exhibited by Fulton Sheen. Save your seat and register at actin.org slash events. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I'm the research director at the Acton Institute. And welcome to this Acton podcast. It's my great pleasure to have with us today uh, Mustafa Akyal, who is, of course, uh, at the Cato Institute now, where he is a senior fellow who is studying very closely the question of Islam and liberty. He's also the author of numerous books, uh, most prominently, I suspect, uh, his Islam Without Extremes, which has been translated into a number of languages. Uh, he's also become a regular contributor at the New York Times, in which he writes about questions of religion, liberty, and particularly, of course, Islam. Mustafa, welcome to this Acton podcast and welcome to the Acton Institute as well. Thanks so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to talk with you on this podcast and to be at Acton Institute, you know, once again. Well, I should mention, uh, Mustafa, that you've uh, participated at our flagship event, Acton University, for 10 years, I think. Yeah. Real, almost yeah, really you. very much from yeah. the very beginning, which we held this event in which we bring uh, over a thousand people from around the world, including an increasing number of Muslims, uh, to Acton University to discuss themes of religion, liberty, and economics. Uh, you're here today because you've been uh, lecturing and giving some presentations to our staff on the whole question of Islam and liberty. I thought we might begin by just hearing a, a bit of biography in the sense of what really got you interested in this question of Islam and its relationship to ideas about freedom. I'm from Turkey. I grew up in uh, first Ankara, then Istanbul. And uh, I come from, let's say, a mild mainstream Islamic tradition in Turkey. My parents were observant, but not very, not very orthodox. And in Turkey, we didn't have much of Islamic extremism problem or authoritarianism in the name of Islam because Turkey is a secular republic. Actually, we had problems of authoritarianism <laughs> from the secular uh, side. I mean, uh, the Turkish military was often uh, brutal or authoritarian. My father was imprisoned uh, after the 1980 coup in Turkey. I was a child. I saw him in, in a military camp, basically, turned into prison. So I, I grew up in an environment where authoritarianism and uh, freedom, I mean, it was right there. I mean, my father is an important political thinker in Turkey, Taha Akyol. He's written about uh, Tocqueville and uh, Edwin Burke, and he's been critical of the French Revolution and that side of enlightenment, but more open to the, more in favor of the Scottish or the Anglo-Saxon, let's say, tradition. So I grew up with these ideas, and and I became more pious, you know, intensely religious, I can say, in, in, the, in my college years. I joined with some religious groups. But I started to see problems there of obedience, unquestioning obedience mm -hmm. to a group leader. And ultimately, I outgrew that. And, uh, but I saw, well, obedience to Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran or obedience right. to uh, Muslim uh, clerics in, 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 uh, and on also authoritarian interpretations of religion. I mean, my, the more I grew and learned more about my faith and my uh, region— I saw authoritarianism sometimes in the name of religion, sometimes in the name of other ideologies. And I, saw, I thought at some point I realized, well, there is a problem of authoritarianism as such, and we have to rescue Islam from this. 
uh, my own study of the Quran and uh, in different from the Islamic tradition itself, I think, has given me some insights. And I ultimately became a public intellectual in Turkey. I became a newspaper columnist. I had a TV show that went on quite a while. And one thing I was trying to do is to open up minds in the religious spheres in Turkey towards ideas of freedom, religious freedom, freedom of speech, uh, equality. Turkey was on the verge of joining the European Union and uh, whether we should accept certain precepts of liberal democracy or not from an Islamic point of view. That was an interesting discussion in Turkey. I tried to contribute to that. I tried to contribute to that, but sometimes ideas I borrowed from uh, the Western tradition, not the French tradition. <laughs> That's always good. Th those were the ones I criticized. I mean, again, French tradition is nuanced too, but what I mean is that hard secular, hardcore secularism. That was actually something I was criticizing a lot. 9-11 uh, happened and I said, well, the world needs to know more about, you know, different understandings in Islam, nuances. And I started to write more in the U.S. Uh, then my books came out. So it just went on like that. And I think uh, I'm, I'm a Muslim believer, but who sees a lot of problems, huge problems. In You've said a couple of, in a couple of occasions in conversations we've had that Islam is going through a very dark period now. Yeah. Could you explain I think on it's that? the worst era of the whole Islamic civilization. I mean, wow. this is our... This is our 15th century. I mean, Islam began in, uh, with Prophet Muhammad in the year 610. For many centuries, Islam was a powerful faith and had the pride of that power. Uh, it was a winning faith. And You mean politically, politically militarily? Islamic empires, right. yeah. Uh, and its standards were not criticized as regressive. I mean... Five centuries ago, people were not criticizing Islam for lack of religious liberty because religious liberty was not that much of a universal idea in the first place. Right. Um, but in the past two, three centuries, first Muslims began losing political power. They become colonized by Western powers or they felt inferior, weak. Of course, that happened because Islam didn't have the Industrial Revolution or the Scientific Revolution. So Europe had a great advance forward. Uh, which the rise of modernity. And also new ideas started to come, equality uh, before law, you know, freedom, freedom to criticize the government, you know, freedom to change your religion, uh, these things. And Muslims started to react to these things. Some of them accepted, some of them reacted, some of them saw this as an attack on our tradition. And uh, still Islam is going through this turbulent question of what to do with this modern world, we're, we can't dominate it anymore. I mean, we, we can't be a dominant, a victorious fate anymore. So should we uh, accept things like human rights declarations? I mean, are they compatible with our tradition? Should we try to preserve a hierarchical understanding of society where Muslims are superior and non-Muslims are? And these questions are there in every Muslim society. Some have made important progress. Some are still in more uh, classical uh, and even not classical on top of classical Islam, a more zealous neo-fundamentalism came to the scene. You mean like was, Wahhabism and uh, Saudi Wahhabism, Arabia. I mean, it was supposedly defending the tradition, mm. but it was defending it with modern means and sometimes more zealous means. Here's one example. I mean, in Islam, in classical Islam, Sharia was a law for Muslims. But it, you had a system of what we call multiple legal systems. Like if you're a Christian Ottoman Empire, you could have your own... Uh, legal system. You would have you would consult your priest for your issues. Uh, now you have Islamists who are making Sharia the law of the land. 
to impose it on everybody because modern states have one law. So instead of modernizing law and accepting a general law for everybody, they want to make sh- they want to inject Sharia into these centralized states, which is actually more authoritarian than you know what you would have. Is this in, what you see tradition. happening? In, is this how you would explain what you see happening in some of these countries who? Let's call them conventionally, they're often labeled moderate Muslim countries. Is this what you see happening in some of these countries? I mean, you've had experience of this, for example, in um, Malaysia, for example. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, for example, in Malaysia, uh, Malaysia has been a hub for me over the decade. My books were printed in Malaysian. I've been there several, Malay language. I've been there more than five, six times and gave lectures and uh, ultimately got arrested for that in 2017. Uh, Like in places like that, there are traditional Islamic uh, understandings. Uh, they they sometimes have a clash with modernity, but so they can take steps towards more liberal uh, reinterpretation. But then, ba- precisely because of that clash, there comes a more aggressive resurgent, you know, traditionalism, and that is empowered often by the influence of Wahhabi understanding. Wahhabism is the most strict form of Sunni Islam. So you've seen a uh, spread of Wahhabism all around the world. And uh, this happens like, for example, scholars are scholars go to Medina and get educated there. And they get educated, you know, with the Wahhabi understanding. So there has been kind of Wahhabi evangelizing. So that has been one part of it. There has been social dynamics. Uh, the, uh, the more, the less educated, the more rural parts of those societies became more empowered over time and they wanted their political share. I guess Turkey is an example of that to an extent. Turkey right? is an example. I mean, in that sense, quote-unquote democratization mm. sometimes brought more Islamization. Uh, this is not a reason to renounce democracy, but to understand that it's complicated. Uh, for, in Turkey, I mean, we had a secular elite which run Turkey for a uh, long time. Since Ataturk. Since Ataturk. And of course, that elite made the mistake of denigrating religion and thinking that it will go away anyway. So let's just right. <laughs> marginalize it. Right. So they were inspired by the scientism and the 19th century ideas of the disappearance of religion with modernity. So they had that mistake. They were also sometimes authoritarian on the religious groups. And then you have a religion coming back with a vengeance. In Turkey now, that explains a lot with uh, what's happening under President Erdogan. In Iran, it happened in much stricter, harsher terms with the Iranian revolution. Uh, in places like Egypt, that explains you the Islamist movements. So there are a lot of social dynamics behind what we're seeing. But at the end of the day, the question is, uh, do Muslim societies accept uh, norms that are like universal human rights? Do they accept norms like religious freedom? Do they accept norms like equality? And some people say yes, some people don't. It's not a whole dark picture. And but but there needs to be a lot of work done on this. And sometimes it's the work of clerics. Sometimes it's the work of public intellectuals. Uh, I'm I'm trying to you know have a humble role in that. If I was to ask you, what's the biggest theological hurdle that you think Islam has to sort of overcome or even confront, if you like, when it comes to dealing with the problems of extremism that you've written and talked about in different contexts, what would that be? What would be the biggest theological obstacle or challenge that the Islamic world has to deal with? Well, thank you for that very wise question, I should say, because that's something I'm working on right now. And you said theological, and uh, it's a particular concept that is important. Actually, if you ask Muslims today, what do you think about theology, which is kalam in Islam? Most people wouldn't know much. 
Well, the same with Christians and Jews, I suspect, yeah, I mean, as well. Ask a Sunni Muslim, right. like, what, what school of Islam you follow? They'll say, I'm Sunni and Shia. Well, that's not a theology. Ask them, what about what kind of Sunni? Hanafi, Shafi, Wahhabi. These are not even the- these are jurisprudential schools, but. There is, behind that jurisprudence, there are theological precepts. And I'm actually, I think they are really important, although sometimes we don't notice those precepts. We might be still swimming in that, you know, sea, although we're not defining it as such. The biggest theological issue in Islam today, I think, is the tension between divine command theory and objective ethics. Mm. Now, what does that mean? Uh, It goes back to... A type of faith and reason issue? Faith and reason issue. Mm. And we have sharia, that's Islamic law. I mean, that should not be demonized. I should say that. I mean, obeying the Sharia can mean just doing your prayers practice. So it can be on a personal level. It can mean like the halakha of Orthodox Jews today. But Sharia has a lot of injunctions about society, about politics, about corporal punishments and so on. So there are issues, important issues that conflict with freedom in Sharia. Now, the, uh, you can look into this and say, this is written this way, God's commandment is, so this is the truth and I will implement this. That's what gives you the modern fundamentalism we're talking about. Or you can reinterpret that. But to be able to reinterpret that, you need a theological base which tells you, well, these are God's commandments, maybe written at a time, but it had a context. And God's intention with this was something else. And we can realize that intention today. But to be able to take that step you need to have a kind of ethical framework of right and wrong with which you can look into the laws and you can say, well, this law must maybe mean this way or that way because you you have an intuitive sense of justice. Now, this was denied in, in medieval Islam by the school of thought called Asharism. You know, uh, it's come from a scholar named Ash, uh, Abu al-Ashari and, uh, and he... His argument was that when God says don't kill or don't steal, these God is establishing these values. If God didn't tell us what is right and wrong through revelation, we would have no sense of right and so wrong. So you do it because God has commanded it. Yes, that's not so much because, okay, that's an objective norm of justice. Yeah, there's no objective justice. Whatever God says becomes justice. If God said... You can kill innocent people. That would be fine because only God is establishing that. Well, the opposite school of thought in Islam, the Mutazila, spearheaded by the Mutazila, they said, well, no, there is objective right and wrong. God is only reminding us. God is only revealing, indicating those facts. But still, humans would be able to figure out what is right or wrong. Not everything, not afterlife, mm-hmm. not the ritual mm-hmm. prayers. The sorts of things but that are uh, strictly questions of faith. There are things specific to Islam. How do you pray? You know, this mm. is, We wouldn't be able to know this without revelation. We wouldn't know about heaven without revelation. But on moral issues, right and wrong, people can establish this. And so once you have that perspective, you look into Sharia and you start to understand its intentions. You say, oh, it makes sense. Yes, I mean, uh, theft should be punished because property rights and so on. So you can extract from the law a philosophy of natural law, let's say. So in Islam, we had the potential for that, but I think that didn't develop enough because ultimately Mutazilism was brushed aside as a heretical strain. It had some influence on the Maturidi school in Sunni Islam, but that itself didn't become very definitive in the Sunni world. So I think that is one of the biggest theological nuts, if you will, 
we have to untackle to be able to go forward. Because at the end of the day, no matter reform and change you bring, some people will say, well, God said so like this, and we have to implement it as such. Uh, for example, one issue that the North Africans are discussing today in Tunisia, the, in, in, in all Arab societies, there's an inheritance law which says men will get twice of the female's share in inheritance. Like I'm a father, I'm passing, out, I'm passing away, I have a daughter and a son, the son gets twice the share. And you know what? That, why? That is in the Quran. And so it has been kept as such. So it's God's commandment, you can't do away with that. Now, the Mutazila approach would tell you, well, God said so, or at least could have told you, males were responsible for running a household. So in that context, it, it makes justice. sense. It makes right. sense. But today, you have so many single mothers, you have women that are independent. So it is unfair today. So the context change, we can reinterpret God's law. But to be able to do that, you should have a sense of justice that is something separate from the commandment itself. Uh, and I think that's an important theological issue. That's a topic of a new book I'm working on, actually. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Let's, um, let's close up with just one question that I'd like to ask, which um, I, you, you've addressed this in a number of different places, but I think it's important to say again. As Christians and Jews and other people of other faiths or even non-believers, as they look at what's happening inside um, the Muslim world, what's the most significant thing they can do to contribute to the type of work that you're doing? Because in the end, I think it's it's not for Christians or Jews or non-believers. They, they can't solve these problems. I often say to people, the only people who can solve this problem are Muslims themselves. But what do you think that Christians, Jews, people of other faiths, even non-believers, what's the most significant thing they can do to help in terms of furthering the project that you're trying to do when it comes to Islam and liberty? Um, sure. First of all, I would encourage them to see the diversity and nuances in Islam. I mean, the people, unfortunately, who shape the image of Islam in the West today are the Muslims who do the most horrible things, like terrorists, radicals, people who are really violent. And so they, they make something terrible. They create headlines. And those people are there. I'm not denying they have nothing to do with Islam. They're a fanatic strain within Islam. But I think if Westerners start to see Islam only through that lens, uh, we will get into a big you know, tension and that tension will make everything worse. So to try to see the nuances in Islam and have conversations with Muslims about these things. The other thing is uh, just keep the West as a beacon of liberty, please, <laughs> so we can refer to it. Uh, like whenever I have uh, conversations with Muslims in the Muslim-majority world, I'm saying, well, listen, we don't have to have theocratic states what we need is freedom from the state. What we need is liberty. And uh, freedom flourishes more healthy ways in, in, in free societies. And, well, where are those free societies? They're not in North Korea. You know, they're not. They're, they are in the U They're in the West. I mean, particularly the U.S. Uh, so, but if those societies give up that freedom, become, uh, they start to ban women wearing headscarf. They want to issue Muslim bans or things like that. Muslims... Muslims will start to lose that perspective, and the whataboutism of the mm. Islamists will mm. start to be uh, strengthened. I mean, the term whataboutism was, you know, used for Soviet propaganda. The Soviets would find certain flaws in Western democracy, and they would like say, "What about segregation in the United States?" Sorry? They segregation in the like United segregation, States, racism. Was I mean, that was a, something the Soviets talked about all the time. Yeah. And they were not wrong about that particular point, but that didn't justify Stalinism. So. 
but Islamists have a big what aboutism literature out there. They typically say, what about this? What about that? What, if you speak about human rights, what about Guantanamo? What about So let's keep the Western liberal democratic standards high and freedom and, and freedom standards. So it is a model that we, people like me can uh, refer to. Mustafa, thanks very much. I uh, recommend people, uh, if you're listening to this, that it's very much worth reading his book, Islam Without Extremes. Do you have a title for the forthcoming book yet? Or uh, It is titled Reopening the Muslim Mind for Reason, Freedom and Tolerance. Like a great title. I hope the publishers keep that. Mustafa, thanks very much. We're very glad that you could be with us today. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening today. Our team here at Acton couldn't produce Act in Line without you, and we want to hear any feedback you have for this show. Help us make an even better podcast and email us at actinline at actin.org. Also, last but not least, don't forget to swing over to our website at actin.org slash line and subscribe to this podcast. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you listen. <laughs>